Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine. Hi, and welcome to another episode of AEP Practice Life. I am Dr. Mike Pownall, and today we're going to be talking about profitability, practice profitability, what contributes to practice profitability. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is when I look on Facebook groups or any kind of discussions between veterinary practice owners, whether they're equine or companion animal, what I'm seeing a lot in an equine is, wow, things are getting expensive. Wages are going up. The cost of fuel is going up. The cost to run a practice in general is going up. So I thought, I want to bring in a couple of experts on the subject to sort of walk us through practice profitability and the factors that contribute to it. So my first guest I'd like to welcome is uh, Dr. Bob Magnus from Wisconsin. Bob. Hey, Bob, how are you? Very good, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me on board. This is a Uh, A great topic for us all to discuss. Great. We're also joined by Mr. Uh, John Chalk out of Texas. John, welcome. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. I I feel like I'm anchoring down the south of all of of you guys. I've got two northerners, and then so I may talk a little slower than the rest of you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Many AEP members uh, are probably familiar with both Bob and John. Both have presented in the business programs at the AEP. Uh, but in case they haven't, Bob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Thanks, Mike. I'm an equine practitioner. I've been a practitioner for over 30 years and sold my business, Wisconsin Equine Clinic, and moved on to spending time helping different practices um, with operational changes and helping them improve profitability and culture as they, uh, as you said, meet the challenges of, of things that are happening now and in the future. Great. And John, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've got Quite the bio. Yeah. Well, I come by it honest. It's been a lot of years of training. I'm a CPA and attorney as well as a CFP. We have a firm based out of North Texas that does fee-based financial planning and money management. But we spend about 40% of our practice is working with uh, veterinarians sort of all over the country, thinking about their personal planning and as part of that, therefore, thinking about their practice because most veterinarians single biggest asset in their personal net worth is their practice. And so we've been able to work with a lot of folks uh, thinking about practice values and profitability and succession and all that stuff. It's been a great, great time. Okay. So let's just to make sure we have the, you know, the framework of what we're talking about. Uh, John, we'll, we'll continue on with you. What would you say are the key contributors to practice profitability? You know, it's, it's interesting as we've studied equine practices particularly, but even all veterinarian practices, it's really a pretty simple formula. Profitability is about 
really two parts of the P&L statement, two cost items. First one is drugs and supplies, and the second one is people cost. It's right. really everything else is sort of nickels and dimes. If you're doing a great job managing right. your people cost and managing your drug cost, you're going to be a profitable and valuable practice. Okay. Bob, do you have anything to add to that? No, I uh, I agree. And I think the challenge that we're facing is that we need to be a little bit more proactive in looking at those big cost items than finding other areas on the operational side that you can make some small, some tiny incremental changes and sometimes those small changes can actually turn into some reasonable dollars, especially if maybe you haven't looked at them for a while when it comes to insurance or some of the other costs or, you know, going with John's uh, comment on inventory costs. It's one thing to look at inventory and how much you pay for things, but the operational side of that is really how are you managing your inventory? So it's really kind of the two-pronged approach of, of those big items and if you have those things under control, as John well said, you're going to be able to manage your practice much better because the other tipping part of um, profitability is a continuous and sustained growth because without growth, it's difficult to handle those increasing cost expenses. I just want to make sure you're using the common terminology. So when, when we talk about P&L, that's our profit and loss statement. And we're hoping it's going to be more profit than loss. But, you know, I think the top line of that, as Bob just said, is our revenue. And if we have growth, it's got to be greater than what our costs are if we want to have a profit statement. And I guess what we're talking about is that our costs, whether they are people or drugs and medications, are really increasing quite a bit this year. So this is why we need growth uh, to make sure that it offsets those losses. What I want to make sure, I want to touch base on this because there's people listening to this who are associates. They have no desire maybe to be a practice owner. Maybe they do have some desire to be a practice owner. Could be veterinary technicians. They're office people. Why should a non-practice owner know or care about business profitability? And Bob, I'll let you handle this one first. Yeah, I mean, you may want to buy a practice at some point in time. You may want to be an owner. So as you learn more, um, you can do nothing but help the practice. The other approach is that if you work as a team within the practice and within that culture, everyone will benefit. There are a lot of incredible owners that are happy to share profitability. They're happy to share the good times. If you as, a, as a, an associate practitioner help with that, that will have a, a direct effect on you personally as well as other employees. Because as, as we mentioned earlier, Labor is our biggest cost and continues to be a challenge, even more so now. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, John? I've been both an employer and an employee. And as an employer, what I really love to see in an employee is someone who cares about the bottom line, even though their check may not change much based on the bottom line of the business, they do appreciate how important it is that the business is profitable and is growing and is efficient. And so I love to see employees take ownership of that. And and the thing that I say all the time to veterinarians is everybody in the organization should care about growing the pie. And when I say growing the pie, I mean profitability. And whether that's working hard to contain cost or working hard to grow revenue. You know, that's that's what makes a team really great. 
And I think most practice owners and most employers, when they see an employee that cares about those things and is focused on those things and wants to learn about those things, that employee is very valuable to the organization. And I also think putting yourself in the shoes of an associate is the more profitable a practice can be, the better equipment they can afford, uh, the better support you can have. So ultimately, the better healthcare that we can offer too. So I think it's really tied into our delivery of healthcare. And Mike, I would uh, just like to jump into, I've been in several practices the last year where your owners are sitting down and we have an aging group of owners that are looking for, you know, new future partners. And we look at, are these associates partner potential? And that really goes back to John's comment of their behavior and what they do. Yes, they're very, very valuable. But oftentimes those folks that don't have that attitude rarely have opportunities to become partners. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but uh, the valuable, how valuable that associate is really, really is, is based a lot on this behavior as well. So, John, I know uh, several years ago you did a presentation at the AP looking at a number of uh, equine veterinary practices and their expenses. And in that, you know, when you talk to a lot of uh, veterinarians, everybody wants to know what the benchmark is. Well, what are other people paying for this? And so uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the benchmarks or some of the percentages that you, you came up with. And can we apply them across all practices? And, and what are of these benchmarks are very unique to a practice? Sure. That's a, it's a great question. We did a study of about over 30 practices and over $100 million of revenue. All of these practices were equine practices. Now, some were hospital-based, some were ambulatory. Some were repro focused. So I don't have benchmarks that are per type of equine practice, but generally speaking, uh, of every dollar that comes into the practice, about 13% or 13 cents of that dollar should go right to the bottom line in terms of profitability. And then your people cost, and this includes benefits, seminars, CE, wages, taxes, everything, your people costs should be something a little less than 45% of those dollars. And then drugs and supplies should be somewhere around 20% of every dollar with total cost of professional services, which would include things like imaging costs, field service costs, so that's your fuel and that kind of thing, lab costs, should be your total cost of professional services should be around 27%, so 20% of that being drugs and supplies and the rest of it being everything else. The other, the next sort of biggest expense category would be rent, and that typically comes in at around 6%. Now, if you're an ambulatory practice, your rent's going to be significantly less than 6% of gross. If you're a hospital practice and you just built a big, nice hospital and you're growing into it, then your rent may be as much as 10% of gross initially but with growth coming should be trending down closer to that 6% number. So those are, those are some big sort of lumpy percentages to sort of shoot for. But what would you say to somebody and they're listening to this and going, gosh, um, I, yeah, I'm doing that 13% profitability, but my people cost is less, it's 50%. You know, should I run out right away and make sure I cut that down to 45% or, I mean, are you just happy that, Hey, you made the 13%. It's, 
it's a little bit of everybody's got their own little calculations of maybe your rent's only 4% and you can afford to pay a little bit more for people. Yeah, we see a lot of variation in that people cost uh, above and below that 45% target. And it depends a little bit on the type of practice. So if you're an ambulatory practice and you want to have a vet tech in every truck with every veterinarian and you want to have quite an administrative staff supporting those professionals, then your your people cost may be a little bit higher. So, for instance, if you break down that 45%, you could say the target is probably for professional staff. So this is licensed veterinarians, uh, somewhere around 20 to 23% of total gross. And then your lay staff is going to come in somewhere around 125 to 15%. And then the rest of that 45% is benefits and other costs associated with with all the people i like to see professional comp be roughly twice what lay comp is so if your lay comps at 12 percent, then i'd love to see professional comp at 24 percent or less and and we're seeing wage inflation right now and it's an issue yeah yeah, and we're gonna, and we're going to jump into that because I just I think that's going to be a lot of questions for a lot of people is how do you manage that because that's going to start putting on the pressures on that you know twenty three twenty four percent that you're talking about. So, Bob, what suggestions would you give to a practice owner about how they can influence these main profitability factors? I think you have to sit down and just be really proactive using the, your numbers and working with your staff and. For a long period of time, you know, we've worked really hard and our philosophy was, okay, I'm going to work harder and I'll make more money. And we need to actually work harder on our business, not just in our business as veterinarians. So taking a proactive approach, taking some of the benchmarks as guidelines, and then creating a reporting structure where you can look at the trends of how you're doing. Because as John mentioned, there are variations within these different benchmarks. It's a great way to look at it, but then you can align those benchmarks and put right alongside what are some of your target goals. And each practice is different. So really looking at those trends month after month, year after year, is probably going to be the most valuable thing that you do and say, hey, are there ways in which I can incrementally cut a few of these costs without affecting the service? Are there ways in which I can increase my top end revenue? That may be Four times a year, you have a small increase in fee structure. I mean, just kind of think back and look at what we see on the news today. Inflation is up. People are charging more. You go, you just go to McDonald's and the cost of going buy a hamburger and fries is, is increased dramatically. So most people really look at those, those two components, those simple things of costs and, and revenue, and then try to tackle both of them. We tend as an industry, not to increase our prices or our fee structures very well. Um, we feel that we're already too expensive or we will price ourselves out of the market. So that's something in the area definitely to look at as you start seeing these labor costs increase. I also ask, one of you sort of hinted at it before in terms of, you know, there's a lot of hidden costs in our activities. So I'm thinking of, Bob, you talked about inventory or our accounts receivable and the amount of time it takes us to, to chase after money from our clients. And I bet there's probably a lot of hidden pockets of opportunity, I guess. 
Yeah, and those are what I, I tend to call with our clients the small little wins, those little things that you basically develop a better process, a better system that then becomes a habit. It could be as simple as your invoicing process. It can be as simple as how you collect money. It can be as simple as what is your credit card transaction fees. So one thing that we do with a lot of folks is we just take the income statement, we go line item by line item, compare them to some benchmark numbers, look at the trends over the last couple of years, and start to look for areas that we can investigate. And I think that's especially a a fun thing to do and and valuable thing to do during a slower season. Not all practices have a cyclical nature, but a lot of them do, where there are a few months in the year where things really slow down. In our part of the country, that's now. So right now, for the next few months, it's usually a little slower. So take that opportunity to start to investigate it. Those little changes can mean a lot, especially in inventory, because the, the ability to save money the way we used to 10 years ago by crushing the margins or decreasing how much we have to pay for things is really, really tough now. Those are pretty thin for distribution and manufacturing for them to make a living. And so a lot of actual gains can be seen in how you manage your inventory as one example. I would add to that, and we've talked about it, but I want to just put a name on it. I think it's really important for that practice owner to keep score financially in his practice. And so those little wins that Bob's alluding to, you find those wins when you're actually keeping score on the finances of your practice. So if you've never taken your profit and loss statement and laid 2020, the full year 2020, next to the full year 2019 and next to the full year 2018, and just looked across at what's happened to the trends. Right? How's the revenue growth? What is the my percentage of of cost of uh, drugs and supplies? What is it as a percentage of my revenue? And has that percentage changed over time? And if you do that on every line item in the profit and loss statement, you will begin to see what I call the DNA of the practice, the financial DNA of the practice, because over time those percentages start to look the same. The revenue may grow, or hopefully the revenue doesn't shrink, but but the revenue is going to go up and down. But that percentage of the revenue that I spend on people, on drugs and supplies, on rent, on all those things, that percentage should stay the same. Or if it spikes up, then you want to understand why. So you never have the ability to find those things if you're not keeping score on the finances of your practice. So if if I could tell practitioners anything, it would be just start keeping score. And so just to be clear, well, we're and I think the percentages as opposed to a dollar value is probably more important because dollar values change. But what you're looking at is the cost of something in relation to your revenue, correct? Exactly. So so it's perfectly reasonable if my revenue grows by fifty percent the dollars that I spend on people may go up by 50%, but the percentage should stay the same. Anything to add to that, Bob? No, and what usually seems to be a roadblock for most practices is just getting started. So we've been working with several practices where either their bookkeeper or their key point person for for the owner we help them set up actually that scorecard as John has alluded to And then from that, we teach them how to build it, how to use it, so that it's user-friendly, simplistic, 
in something that the owner's comfortable with learning how to read. Because as veterinarians, we're really good diagnosticians. We're outstanding with the nomenclature of medicine. But the nomenclature of business, it's not hard, but it's not, it's not something we're accustomed to using. And so if I would add to John's, I would try to have people really put a little bit more focus into understanding the numbers and understanding the nomenclature of business, which I think will make this process of keeping score, or monitoring a dashboard or KPIs much easier because it'll become second nature. But that's going to take some effort. Those practices that take that effort see huge, huge benefit. And, that, and that's the fun part of, of the things that we see uh, with our company. Great. We've gone from the general to the specific now. So it is, as we're recording this, it's mid-October 2021. And everywhere you look in the news, they call it the great resignation. There's a shortage of vets. There's a shortage of support staff. I was reading a, a Facebook group, equine veterinary group, and they're saying, I have new associates and they're insisting on the salary. And I heard that I should only be paying about 25% total complete professional fees for a vet, but what they want would bring it to 30. And it really has turned into a, a seller's market. The supply of veterinarians is far less than the demand. And so that's going to influence our profitability. So I'm going to start with you, John, and we'll go to Bob in terms of, okay, you're a practice owner and somebody's coming to you now and saying, I need a vet. You know, I'm a practice owner. I'm, we're starving for vets. And but somebody's coming to you and their wage is really high or their expectations, and you're thinking, well, if I accept what they're asking, I'm going to have to start paying the rest of my staff the same, and I will have no profits. So what kind of advice can we give to these veterinarians, these practice owners, practice managers with the wage inflation that's going on right now? Yeah, it's a very difficult environment right now, and some of it is our own creation. If you compare starting wages for a veterinarian in companion animal practice versus equine practice, what you're going to find is starting salary in an equine practice is significantly less. Yet the demands of the job are greater in a lot of respects over a companion animal practice. So, you know, we all want to wring our hands and say, oh, the veterinarian schools are, are discouraging students from going into equine and, and the schools are doing this and that. But the economic reality is, for that vet student coming out of school, they can make more in companion than they can in equine. And so I think as an industry, we have to recognize that and have to begin to deal with that. And ultimately what that means, if you're going to at some level accept the fact that I've got to pay more, then go right up the profit and loss to the revenue side. And ultimately it means we've got to charge more. Now, everybody's afraid of that. Right. And, and when I suggest that people go, Oh, I can't. We've already done this and that and we can't. Well, in an inflationary environment, like where I think we are as an economy right now, worldwide, inflation means you can charge more than you could in prior periods. And so I think we shouldn't be afraid of that. I think we should embrace it. We should systematize it. Like what Bob said, maybe it's a few percentage point increase every quarter because we're going to have to reply to this wage inflation that it's not only at the professional level, it's at the lay staff level. It's everywhere. So revenue ultimately is the fix. Uh, before I get to you, Bob, I just 
I was reading a story in Canada talking about the demand for vets, and it's not just equine, it's small animal. And they were saying that the veterinary colleges in Canada are graduating enough students just to replace those that are retiring. And that they're expecting that the demand for veterinarians to persist until 2040. And so I don't think it's any different in, in the United States or elsewhere in the world. So this is a this is going to be a, a challenge that we're going to be facing for a long time. So and if it needs raising prices to accommodate it, I think that's something that's going to be part of the discussion. I don't know if you think differently or have other options, Bob. No, I think I, I agree with everything that both you and John have said. And then I'd, I'd kind of like to flip it a little bit different in the discussion. So you have the financial component for the veterinarian, and then you have all the other stuff. The other stuff are the culture. The other stuff are those benefits. The other things that you really have to try to package in because you're now in a much more competitive market to hire somebody in. Typically, you're really good people. Money is a driver, but it's not the only driver. And so you have to find those other things in your own unique practice that make going to your place better than someone else where if there is a $5,000, $10,000, or $20,000 difference in compensation, that's not the tipping point. I've always felt very strongly that if you have really quality people, not quantity people, but quality people, and you develop a really good culture, profits will follow. In this time frame with inflation, we also have to increase prices. And you're going to have to approach it from a couple different perspectives. And you're going to have to be much more aggressive trying to find people. But it's it's going to be here for quite a while. You know, I remember about 10 years ago when everyone was talking about the potential shortage of veterinarians and there was a lot of negativity that, no, there wasn't. And frankly, those folks were right. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're seeing that now. And uh, hopefully we can respond to that. But you're seeing a lot of changes, too, in compensation. People are getting signing bonuses. You didn't used to pay people to uh, moving expenses, which are typically five to fifteen thousand dollars to move somebody. And I've seen bonuses as little as five thousand dollars and up to three hundred thousand dollars for some specialty veterinarians to join their practice. So um, it's real, and it's going to be here for a while. I-, I wish we all had a silver bullet of how we could fix it, but I think it's going to be a multiple pronged approach with everything actually that's been said today. I think that's right, Mike. And I think we gotta, we've got to begin to think about how we practice a little differently, especially in light of the fact that we're going to be competing with companion animal clinics where you can go to a site, you're in a treatment room, it's somewhat safe, sterile, all of that, versus the equine practitioner and particularly the young equine practitioner that's taking emergency call on the weekend and being asked to go to a farm that they may not have ever been to in the middle of the night to deal with an emergency. I think we got to, we got to deal with some of those sort of ways we practice. Uh, one of the things that I've heard recently, and, and you guys may have heard of the same thing, that some of the larger sort of regional equine hospitals are considering going to 24 seven operations. You know, they've already got overnight staff. They already have census in the hospital overnight, virtually every night. And so some of these owners are beginning to say, hey, let's just embrace that. Let's just be open 24-7 and say to our community, you can haul anything you want in here anytime you want. If you need to pull a Coggins on a Saturday night at 1130, come on down. We'll do that for you. If you 
you've got an emergency that we need to see it on Sunday morning at eight o'clock, come on down. Because the other thing I'm seeing is a lot of the ambulatory folks are no longer taking emergency calls. They just don't. And so there's this void of service. And I think it's we're going to come back to the reason a lot of these big regional hospitals were built. Originally, we all thought this would be a referring hospital. For a while, that didn't happen the way we all thought it would. But I think with the shortage of veterinarians and the labor crunch and the wage crunch, those regional hospitals may begin to be used the way we thought they would be as 24-7 referring facilities. Great point. And also, I just uh, remind uh, people that the last podcast we had with AP Practice Life, we discussed how we can use technicians, vet assistants more effectively. And I think there's a lot of things, you know, I think that our companion animal colleagues are do a much better job of saying, this is what a DVM needs to do. This is what a non-DVM can do. And, and I think they're able to leverage lower cost professionals to do a similar job. And I think that's an area too. No, I would, I would agree with that too, Mike. And you're seeing technology helping us uh, bridge some of those gaps too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last question I have. So there's always that cost-benefit analysis. We're talking about, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation of looking at our inventory, looking at our operations, looking at how we're using staff, for example. How do you look at something to go, is the effort worth it in terms of improving my profitability? It's great to say, you know what, if I did this, I'll save a half a percentage point of my cost of goods sold. But is the effort going to cost you 1%? Is it costing you dollars to chase after dimes, I guess? So, John, I don't know if you have any input on that. No, I think it's important. I think you, you've you mentioned it as you brought the topic up. You know, inventory management is one of those things that can cost you a lot of money just to do it right. And so I think you always have to weigh anything from a cost-benefit analysis. And if, you know, getting the last, last drop out of that vial recorded and billed to someone uh, you just can't do it because it's just going to cost too much to do it in terms of labor and everything else. Then you, you make that decision and you go on. But really, I think you can, if if you're keeping score, like what we've talked about a lot today, it will be readily apparent, okay, it's not worth it, right? I mean, my cost of drugs and supplies is already at 17%. And if, if I could hire a full-time pharmacy tech and pay them $40,000 a year, yeah, I could maybe lower that by one percentage point. Well, it may not, may or may not be worth it. But if I look at my cost of drugs and I'm at 30%, okay, it might be worth it. And I might actually be able to bring that down to more closer to the benchmark of 20% on drugs and supplies. And, and it would certainly be worth it. So you're right. I mean, every, everything's got to be weighed from a cost benefit analysis. The other place in the financial statements we see that is the balance sheet. Interest rates are incredibly low right now. You say, okay, I can buy this piece of equipment. Should I pay cash for it or should I finance it? That's a cost-benefit analysis. And with interest rates as low as they are, I'm going to say something that a lot of my clients don't really appreciate when I say it, but you should borrow all the money you can right now. Interest rates are so Mm -hmm. low. They're not going to be low forever. You're not going to want to do, but the cost benefit analysis says finance that equipment as long as you need that equipment. Veterinarians are notorious for buying the latest shiny new thing 
and not really having a business case for it. But uh, so when it comes to a whole nother topic, we could spend a whole other podcast, Mike, on, on CapEx yeah. and, and all of no that. No kidding. But, yep. but that's another example of where you ought to be doing cost-benefit analysis. And so, John, just because I know, I'm, I'm sure people are probably driving around going, well, why is it cheaper to borrow than it is to pay cash? I've got cash in the bank. So maybe I don't know if you've got a two-minute answer on that because I know that's probably the question everybody's having right now. Yeah, well, I agree. If the only thing you're going to do with your cash is leave it in your checking account, then you should spend it on equipment. But I believe that cash sitting in your practice ought to be distributed out to the owners of the practice on a very systematized, regular way. You should not have extra cash sitting in your practice. You should get that distributed out to the owners. And then the owners need to take that cash and redeploy it elsewhere in their personal net worth. If it's just going to sit around as idle cash, that you're losing money on that. Inflation is more than the interest you're going to get at the bank. But if you're going to take that cash and invest it either in another practice or in cash and marketable securities or in real estate or in put that money to work doing something, earning a higher return than the interest you're going to pay on that debt. So if you just go do an equipment loan, you're going to pay 4 or 5%, maybe less interest on that loan. Well, if that same $100,000 that you didn't spend your cash on, but you borrowed, if that $100,000 can earn you 10%, that's why you do it. So, you know, don't, definitely don't have idle cash. If all you're going to do is have idle cash, then don't borrow the money. But if you have a job for that idle cash earning more than the interest you're going to pay, then absolutely borrow the money. Great. Thank you for that. Might as well answer the question I know everybody's thinking of. So, hmm. Bob, uh, last words yours. Is there any, that type of cost-benefit analysis, any recommendations on that? Uh, I agree with the part that there's a lot of value right now to borrow money. I've always looked at it in a pretty simplistic standpoint. If I borrow money and I make money with that borrowed money, it's probably a really good thing. So you really, and I think that's what John was also saying, and you have a lot of different vehicles that you can put it in. But when you look at your practice, you have to say, okay, if I take out a quarter of a million dollars for X, Y, or Z, how much of that money will actually be bringing more money into our business? Or if you want something because you want a fancy office or a fancy car or a fancy or shiny machine, at least you know that you're doing that because that makes you feel good. But maybe that's not the best business decision if it doesn't generate revenue. Cost benefit, uh, something to kind of add on to keeping score into your income statement. When I'm trying to look and say, okay, is this worth digging into or not? What I do is I look at that percentage of cost of goods or I look at the percentage of we'll call medical insurance costs, whatever the expenses. I also put the exact dollar amount if I'm comparing 2019 to 2020, because what you do is when you look at the percentage and the dollar amount, that gives you the full picture of the impact for you. And then you can say, geez, it's, I could save 2%, but it's only 500 bucks. Or I could save 1% here, and it's $30,000. So you really, when you're starting to look at that cost benefit, that's just kind of a quick little uh, thing that might help you make those decisions. Because one thing we don't do well as a practice is we don't, when we have all of these meetings in our practices and do all these different components, 
sometimes just sit down and look at what the average cost per person in the room is when you have a meeting. And what does that really cost you to have that meeting? So if you're going to try to save $150 and you have a meeting for half an hour and that costs you $500 to have that meeting, that's where that cost benefit is. So sometimes just kind of switching and thinking about time and the value of time and the cost to you will help you with, you know, figuring out the, you know, is it worth it or is it not? Those are just some some kind of some closing thoughts, Mike. I know my wife actually says this when we're looking at costs. She's like, how many language exams are I going to take to do this? <laughs> I think it's a great way to look at it because you think about it. Yeah. That's hard work to do that sometimes. And it's like, is it really worth that effort? <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much. This has been uh, really insightful. And I think and it's timely just because of the wage inflation and just the um, our economy is sort of up and down right now. We're not sure where it's going to go. I think being able to maintain our profitability is going to prepare our practices for continued success because the actions we can take now are really going to benefit us in the future. So thank you both very much. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. John Chalk, CPA, JD, CFP, CHSNC, is a founder of Trinity Portfolio Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisory firm located in South Lake, Texas. Investment advisory and financial planning is offered through Trinity Portfolio Advisors, LLC. John is a licensed CPA and attorney in the state of Texas, but does not practice through Trinity Portfolio Advisors, LLC. No information provided is to be construed as tax or legal advice. Please see a full list of disclosure documents at www.trinityportfolio.com. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. Beringer Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.